Good evening, brothers and sisters. You're welcome to open your Bible in, uh, on Judges chapter 6. And while you're, you're turning there, I'd like to give a few words of context before we start reading this chapter or a part of it. And as we read above verse 11, we will read that it's the calling of Gideon. And we will focus in this passage especially on verses 11 to 16 which will focus on the calling of Gideon as the fifth judge of Israel. And before Gideon was appointed as judge or called as judge to rule in the country of Israel, there was four other judges, Othniel, Ehud, Shamhar, Deborah, and they each liberated the Israelites from the hands of foreign kings and brought peace to the people, drawing the people back to the worship of the true God. At the time of the judges, there was no king in Israel, and as we continually read throughout the book of Judges, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They were sinning against God, being unfaithful towards Him, and whoring after Baal, Asheroth, and Dagon, which were the gods of the Canaanites. And this is only the start of a fourfold cycle that we read again and again throughout the book of Judges. First, we find apostasy, as we heard from this morning. We hear, we hear that the nation of Israel commits this sin of apostasy, where they who, were, they who were the visible church of the time did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They were worshiping the false gods, gods whoring after them being unfaithful towards the Lord, and so they committed apostasy, which was the first cycle or the first part of this cycle. The second part, in the second part, we find servitude, meaning that God allowed the people of Israel to be oppressed for several years by a neighboring nation. And then because of this oppression of these nations over Israel, the Israelites realized, but wait, there's something that we did wrong. They realized that they have committed idolatry. So they repent. They cry again to the Lord and ask Him, beg Him for His interference so that He may rescue them. And that is then the third cycle, the third stage in the cycle. And then, the fourth, and then fourthly, we read of salvation. In response to the repentant cries of the people, God sends out a judge then who will be acting as a military leader rather than a spiritual reformer to lead the nation of Israel back to freedom, breaking the bonds of the foreign kings ruling over them so that there would have been a period of rest in the land where the people could freely worship God again. But then sadly, just shortly after the judge died, or in various cases, even while the judge was still alive, the cycle repeats itself. And the Israelites fall back into the sin of apostasy, and being oppressed by a foreign king, they repent and they turn back to God, asking Him for His deliverance. And finally, God sends a new judge to bring deliverance, and then that cycle just starts over again. And such was the case with the previous four judges. And as the story of Gideon unfolds, and as we read throughout the book of Judges, it also happens in the life of Israel 
while or before, while and after Gideon was a judge with the, this downward spiral of godliness just keeps on continuing. So let us read now together Judges 6 from verse 1 to verse 24. Hear now the word of the Lord our God. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midianites seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people from the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, cry out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joaz the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from me until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you cakes from So Gideon went into the house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephod of flour. 
the meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the, under the terebinth, and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes, and put them on this rock, and pour the breath over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belonged to the Beersrites. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord, our God, will stand forever. Please pray with me and ask for the blessings of the Lord, our God, upon the reading of his word. Our Father who is in heaven, we praise your holy name in giving us your holy word whereby we may grow in knowledge and faith and trust in you. We thank you for this history of Gideon that is recorded for us. And we ask you, may we be taught through it by your spirit what you want us to hear. And Father, may this sermon lead all of us to Christ. For in him alone we trust as the captain of our salvation. We pray that you will bless us now with your spirit and with truth, so that what we do, say, think, sing, or pray may be to the glory of your name. Amen. Saints, don't you just appreciate the scriptures? Don't you just appreciate it oftentimes while reading the word of God, and you're having your Bible in your hand, and maybe in the middle of a passage, maybe at the end of it, you just realize, wow, this is the true and living Word of God. This is not a storybook. This is not a book full of stories or fiction stories made up. But this is the Word of God, trustworthy in all aspects. At times we also read the Word of God and then we get astonished at how relatable it is. When reading a story in the Bible, we oftentimes experience the truth in this story, in this um, piece of uh, history that is given to us, and we experience that in our own lives. It is as if the author of the Bible or authors of passages of the Bible, let's say Moses in the Pentateuch, or David in the Psalms, or Paul in his letters, had us in mind while writing down what they've written. The Word of God is so relatable. What do I mean by that? Well, have you, for instance, while listening to the Word of God tonight from Judges chapter 6, also thought by yourselves, oh yes, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? Where are the wondrous deeds that our fathers recounted to us? If the Lord is for Israel, and if the Lord is for us, 
Why then do we experience such pain and trauma from death, from illness? Or why do we experience such pain from the sin that we commit or the sin of people around us? If the Lord is for us and if the Lord is with us, why then is there today once again a war raging in this same geographical area close by to Gaza? Yes, if the Lord is for us, why then has all, all this happened to us? Or maybe you have sat under the reading of the word tonight and thought by yourself, well, maybe I'm just like Gideon. Maybe I'm receiving too big of a task that I won't be able to accomplish. Maybe the Lord is giving me something much bigger and I don't have the physical, mental, or emotional capacity to do what He bids me to do. How would I be able to tend to this calling He has placed on my life? After all, I'm the weakest, and I'm the smallest, I'm the least. There's so many people who has much more better talents or abilities to do what He calls me to do. Why me? Well, beloved, through this passage of the Word of the Lord, we are once again reminded that we are able to do what the Lord calls us to do, because the Lord who calls us to our daily vocation is also the Lord who strengthens us with His might so that we would be able to do it. And furthermore, we are reminded to hold fast to the Lord and His mighty deeds so that we may remember His faithfulness. And I have titled the sermon for tonight, Mighty in the Hand of the Lord. And through two main points, we will hear that His faithfulness gets exercised through His appointed means to the glorification of His name. In the first point of the sermon, we will hear, The Lord makes strong the hand of His servant. And in the second point, Remembering the faithfulness of the Lord's mighty hand. The Lord makes strong the hand of His servant and remembering the faithfulness of the Lord's mighty hand. And we begin now with the first points of the sermon. The Lord makes strong the hand of His servant. As we said just before reading the word, there's this fourfold cycle that com continually appears throughout the book of Judges. And in verse 1, we read of the first and the second stage of this fourfold cycle. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as you just look below, just above chapter 6, you will see the indentation of chapter 5 is quite funny. And you will recognize that certain parts in Scripture has this indentation in the ESV translation with a poem or a song that has been sung. And if you go back one page, you will read the song of Deborah and Barak. Deborah and Barak sang a song to glory the name of the Lord because of the mighty victory they had over Sisera and Jabin. The nation of Israel was 40 years earlier also in this oppressing situation where they were oppressed by other nations, and Deborah and Barak brought victory for them. 
And then Deborah and Barak sang this wonderful song to praise the Lord for the might that he has shown through this victory. And then in, in verse 31 of chapter 5, the song concludes, and the land rest for 40 years. And then in chapter 6, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, where we hear the cycle continuing, beginning again. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. In chastising the people of Israel because of their waywardness, the Lord sent the Midianites as well as the Amalekites and other nations from the east to oppress Israel so that they would be drawn closer to God, repenting of their worshiping the worthlessness of their idols. And we didn't read all of it, but in verses 25 to 27, we read that Israel was worshiping Baal. They were worshiping Asherah. They had an altar for Baal. In fact, it was in Gideon's father's back in his yard. He erected a temple, or an altar rather, for Baal. And we then read in quite some detail of the oppression that Israel faced. Various verses from verse 2 to verse 7 points it out how the oppression took place. Being persecuted by these nations, the Israelites had to hide in dens, in caves, and in the mountains just to stay out of the sight of the oppressors. And even then, these neighboring nations would come like a swarm of locusts and devour the produce of the land, stealing all the crops, sheep, oxen, donkeys, everything from the Israelites. And upon this adversity, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord for help, where after the Lord, unlike in other accounts in the judges' narratives, he sent a prophet to minister the word to the people, confirming his covenant promises. Through the prophet, the Lord reminds the people of who he is. He is the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel. He reminds the people that it is He who led them out of Egypt and brought them out of the house of slavery. He delivered them out of the hand of many nations. And then in Exodus, and then like in Exodus chapter 20, the Lord first establishes or reminds who He is. And then afterwards, He reminds the people of Israel of their obedience. First the indicative then the imperative. And after disclosing his covenant name and his covenant nature, he reminds them of the covenant agreement that they have with him. He will be a God and a father to Israel, but he expects the Israelites to live in a worthy manner as his children, not worshiping the gods of the Amorites, but being faithful to the true and living God alone. But they did not obey the Lord, and that led the, to the oppression of the people by the Midianites. And as this oppression was, so to say, at its peak, we read that Gideon was busy hiding from the Midianites, beating wheat in a winepress. Now, the traditional way of threshing wheat, separating the chaff from the grain, was to let oxen tread over the wheat on a big threshing floor in the open field, where the wind would blow over the chaff and would blow the chaff away 
so that only the grain would be left on the floor, which could then be gathered and used to bake cakes or breads. But because of the Midianites lurking around to plunder what they can, Gideon was fearing for his life, and he used a small wine press. Wine press, which would have been a hole dug in the ground, wherein grapes were usually trampled on so that the wine, the juice, can flow out into another hole. He hide, hid in that wine press so that the Midianites couldn't see him, so that the wind also wouldn't blow away all the chaff and be, and be able to know where he is so that they will come and take his wheat away. And saints, as we read this, description of what Gideon was busy doing, it's not very difficult to see that there's nothing extraordinary special about Gideon. He was no man of profound bravery or courage. He was not a war general psyching up the Israelites to stand up against the Midianites and to attack them and to, del and to ensure deliverance and freedom from them. No, he was a simple countryman, laying low, hiding from the face of the enemies to safeguard his own life and the perseverance of that wheat and the crops that he was busy beating out. And even though this is the case, the angelic messenger appeared to him and said to him in verse 12, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And this same angel also commands him in verse 14 to go in this might of yours to save Israel. And when reading this, the irony of the words of the angel of the Lord absolutely struck me down. When researching the meaning of valor, I came up with these definitions. Valor means the strength of mind or spirit that enables a person to encounter danger with firmness. It means that one has great courage in the face of danger, especially in battle. And this Hebrew word, which is used both in verse 12 as valor and in verse 14 as might, has the same basic root. If the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and told him, you are powerful and mighty, Gideon. Go in this power and in this might and bring victory to the Israelites. And it's not hard to hear the irony here. Because does man of valor strike you as a worthy description of Gideon? Does this command to go in his own power and conquer a mighty nation seem reasonable to a man who is in hiding, fearing his own life? And does this fit with Gideon stating that his family, the Abiezrites, is the weakest of Manasseh and that he is the least in his father's house? Can someone be in hiding, scared for his life, and be of such a small stature still be called mighty man of valor? Can he be called fearless, brave, powerful, and courageous warrior? And then comparing these two statements, the one from the angel of the Lord and the statement from Gideon himself where he says that he is the weakest, he is the least, 
Comparing these two statements along with the way in which Gideon was beating the wheat, we can easily, very easily deduct the following. In reality, there was not an inch of valor or might in Gideon. It's as simple as that. Nothing about the personality, the character, or the being of Gideon made him powerful or gave him the confidence that he could have, should have had to go in his own might to bring a victory, a military victory. And this is exactly the point that the angel of the Lord is communicating to Gideon and what the Spirit of the Lord is also communicating to us tonight through this passage. Even though the angel commands Gideon to go in this might of his, this might or courage and bravery that Gideon could have was not his own. It was not his own, but it came from the Lord. It was a transferred might rather than an inherent might that Gideon had in his, himself. The might which Gideon needed to conquer the Midianites would not have come from himself or from any other human being, but it came from the Lord, the God of Israel. And the key aspect that would give Gideon the strength and might he needed to commit to this assignment was that the Lord would be with him, as the angel also confirms in verse 16. The angel of the Lord being here the spokesperson or the representative of God saying, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. It would be through the might of the Lord that Gideon could achieve victory. And then we didn't read that as well. But in chapter 6 verse 34, we, we read the explicit mean whereby Gideon would achieve victory. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And then he destroyed the altar of the Baals. And in that might, whereby the Spirit of the Lord clothed him, he would also later on achieve victory over the Midianites. And beloved, it was never the intention of the Lord that Gideon would lead the Israelites to victory out of his own might. For in reality, he, like us, have no might in ourselves. And likewise, it was never through the strength of Mo Moses in himself that he led the Exodus out of Egypt. But as it is revealed through the Scripture, it was through the Lord's outstretched arm and his mighty hand that he gave deliverance. And so also in verse 8, the prophet came and reminded the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. It was the Lord that brought deliverance in the past, and through Gideon's time period, it would, it would also be the Lord that brings deliverance to Israel. God would be the main character to wipe out the militaries of the Midianites and the Amalekites as he wiped out the Egyptians and all the inhabitants of Canaan. And the Lord would do that by strengthening the hand of his servant Gideon so that he would be led by the Spirit to perform the duties of the judge in a way that God commanded him, striking down the Midianites and leading Israel 
to freedom. And just as the Lord told Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 and 9, not to fear, not to be dismayed, for I am with you, such is the case with Gideon. I will be with you, says the angel of the Lord to Gideon. And throughout all the mighty deeds that the Lord has done through Gideon in his reign as judge in the years that is to come, where he drove out the Midianites away from Israel, securing the safety for the people to worship God, it would be displayed that the Lord is at work through him, the weakest and the least. And I do believe that the Lord used this weak and mightless servant of him so that Gideon or the people of Israel could not be led to boast in Gideon, or that Gideon could boast in himself, but that they would glorify God alone. But read a few chapters later, and we see exactly that. He that cried out, Why me? I am weak and I am the least. It is he who boasts in himself, forgetting the Lord his God. But beloved, the Lord used people weak and small, the least in families, the least in classrooms, the least in IQ tests or strongman competitions. He does not need the wisest of all people or the strongest or the most prominent figures in a culture to remind his people of his faithfulness, leading them back to him. Or he does not any prominent person to complete a task that he set before them. But he uses simple people. People like Gideon, weak and small, the least in his family, being entrusted by the power of the Holy Spirit to liberate Israel from the Midianites. Our Lord uses people like Esther, an adopted orphan girl who would be placed as the queen of Persia to bring deliverance to the people of God. He uses people like John the Baptist, wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, eating locusts and wild honey to proclaim the gospel of salvation through Christ alone. Saints, if we think that we need to be mighty or extremely wise or smart to be used in the kingdom of God, we've got it wrong. He never needed a Moses or a Gideon or a David or even a Calvin, a Spurgeon, a Sprawl, or a Pastor Bullock to remind his people of his faithfulness. He could have used divine beings, angelic messengers to minister his word to his people. But instead, he uses us in our weakness. He uses us in our weakness and clothes us with his Holy Spirit to make us strong, to make us to be able to be the heralds of good news and to stand in his service as his servants. He strengthens us through his Holy Spirit to enable us to attend our daily vocation. His Spirit makes our hand mighty, metaphorically speaking, so that we are able to lead our families, to love our wives, to categorize our children, to go to work and live in a worthy manner of the gospel. It is not by our own strength. It is all for the glory of God, by the might and power of God 
of God. And saints, I think we don't consider this too often, but we may be thankful towards the Lord that we are weak, that we are the least. Because if it was in our own strength that we could have accomplished anything, Rest be assured that because of our sinfulness, we would have boasted in our own strength to accomplish anything. Now let us not look up to ourselves or the achievements that we have accomplished or even in the power of the Lord accomplish something. But let us remember the faithfulness and the strength of the Lord that He has shown us by leading us. For it is He who began a good work in us who will also bring it to completion. And therefore, we may never boast in our own valor or strength, if we had any, but we may only humble ourselves, acknowledging our weakness, submitting ourselves to Christ, because it is through our weakness that the power of our Lord is made perfect. Through our weakness, we are reminded that we cannot boast in ourselves but we are led to fix our eyes upon Christ and remember His faithfulness. And that leads us to the second point of the sermon, remembering the faithfulness of the Lord's mighty hand. The first time we hear Gideon speaking in this passage is that he says, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? If the Lord is with us, why does it not feel that way? Why do we feel as if we are left on our own? Why do we experience such a time of distress? You see, saints, for Gideon and quite possibly for the whole of Israel, it felt as if God had forsaken them because of the circumstances that they are in, being under the oppression, under the bondage of the Midianites. And through this, we can hear that Gideon, in reality, equates God's faithfulness with the prosperity of the nation. In their minds, the Israelites thought something like, if we are free from foreign oppression, and if we are in good circumstances, then that means that the Lord is faithful. That means that He is with us. But if we are oppressed, and if we are in times of tribulation, that means He is unfaithful and He has forsaken us. And meanwhile, once again, the irony of what happened in reality is that when the people of Israel are set free from oppression, it is they who forsake the Lord. And the land had rest for 40 years being led to victory by the mighty hands of God. And what do the people do? Do they remember God? Do they stay with God, to put it in that manner? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, forsaking God. Israel are the ones who have forgotten the Lord. And now that they are desperate for help, now it's Gideon who also almost has the audacity to point the finger to God. It is God who has forsaken us. Oh, beloved, the irony of this word. The irony of our own hearts when we may have had the same idea when we were facing afflictions. How can this be? 
How can we equate our earthly prosperity with God's faithfulness? So as if to say, only if I get what I want or only if I receive what I need, then God is faithful. Then I will love Him, for He is faithful. So as if you use God as a genie in a bottle, and only when He is good for you and when He gives you what you want or need, then you will love Him and praise His name and say that He is faithful. Oh, this cannot be. This cannot be, Gideon. It is you and the people of Israel that has forsaken God. God has not forsaken you. But let us not be quick to point the finger to Gideon and his little faith. Because we too might be tempted to think that if we are healthy, wealthy, and happy, that means that God blesses us abundantly and that He is faithful. But what happens if we get ill or we have a loved one that turns ill or is facing death or that we, when we go through economical or social troubles or some, sort, some other sort of affliction? Are we tempted to think that God has forsaken us? Do we feel by people, but also by, from God in these circumstances? How far be it from us that we may think this for a single moment that God has forsaken us. And may we be very careful not to fall in the errors of the prosperity gospel which, which preaches that God wants you to be rich. He wants you to be happy healthy, wealthy, and to live your best life now. They teach if your faith is strong enough and if you pray hard enough, you will receive whatever you want to receive. It's not even necessary for me to point out that this sort of reasoning is a man-centered gospel, which is no gospel at all. And now, beloved, let us not think that God is unfaithful because of the earthly good that He has not given us. Because God does not live to give us what we want. It is not His highest end to please us with what we receive. But we live to worship Him. We live to glorify and enjoy Him forever. That should be our main focus in this life as well as in the life that is to come. And therefore, let us remember who He is and be reminded of that which he has given us in faithfulness indeed. You see, Gideon and the people of Israel has just received the words of the prophet of the Lord, reminding them of the faithfulness of the Lord. How he delivered them out of Egypt and how he drove out the Canaanites before Israel by his mighty deeds to give them the promised land. Why then would Gideon think that the Lord would not also in this matter show him his faithfulness by delivering them out of the hand of the Midianites? Why would Gideon think, no, the Lord won't use Israel now. It is God has forsaken us. Why would he say, if the Lord is with us, why has all these things happening to us? I'd like to propose an answer to that. It might be because Gideon did not focus on what God has done, but he kept his eyes focused on the problem at hand. 
And how oftentimes does our hearts and minds also race towards our problems in this life. And we get so fixated on that that we forget the goodness of God and the work that He has done, even in adversities. How is it that we are so quick to forget the goodness of the Lord, the deliverance that He has brought in the past, the daily sustenance with which He cares for us? No, brothers and sisters, if we think that we are left on our own, forsaken by God, and our lives is filled with darkness without any light, let us not forget that darkness is not a sign of God's forsaking us. He has delivered His people out of various darknesses in their lives before. And He has delivered Israel time and time again from their oppressors, from their enemies, and also from their sin. And was it not on the cross on Golgotha when Jesus, along with the world, had endured three hours of darkness that God gave us the ultimate deliverance? Indeed, in that darkness, Christ was forsaken by God. His Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, had left him, and he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? so that we would not be forsaken by God forevermore. Through His mighty deeds on the cross, He has saved us. Gideon asks the question in verse 15, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? I am weak and I am the least. I have no power. Christ saved Israel. He saved everyone who puts their trust in Him, for He is not weak. He is not the least. He is mighty. He is the mighty Savior of the world. There is might and power and glory in Him. And even though He was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, and we read in Micah 5 verse 2, I believe, where the prophet speaks of Bethlehem, Ephrata, as the one who is too little to be among the clans of Judah. Even from this small old city, a mighty Savior rose. A Savior who brought our deliverance. Yes, through His substitutionary atonement, through His undergoing the pains of hell and the full wrath of God in our place, He paid all the wages of our sin. And thereby we receive the ultimate deliverance. We were bought, bought free from the ultimate oppression of the Satan and of our own sins. And we are united to Christ. We are united to Christ, my brother and my sister. And because of that, because of us being united to Christ... Christ, who is our God, will never leave us, never leave us alone, even if we sin. This fourfold cycle is concluded. Even if there is cycles in our own lives, we sin, and we heard about that in the closing of the sermon from Pastor Bullock this morning, the person sinning, and that makes her fall away from the Lord and from the faith. That might happen to us at times where we sin putting the Bible and the Word of God and the Lord Himself aside for some time. 
and then being pulled back to Him, trusting in Him again our fullest. But even that, through that all, our Lord and our Savior will not leave us. For we have a mediator who has paid the full ransom for our salvation. We can be sure of that. Beloved, in times of affliction, if it feels that you are left alone, may you remember the might of the Lord which He has shown through the rising up of His Son. If you are distressed, keep faith in that. You who are feeling as if you are oppressed, hold fast to the promises made by God in His Word. And remember that the cure for thinking that God has left you is remembering His faithfulness and His good and mighty works through the sacrificial offering of His Son, so that we may never be forsaken by Christ. And may we find our rests in the mighty works of the hand of the Lord our God, not in ourselves or in our circumstances. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that in ourselves we are weak and we have no might or power. And we confess that we, in our sinfulness, so often things think that we are mighty. We are mighty men and women of valor. Father, we pray to you and we beg you to humble us in the reality of who we really are so that we may acknowledge that there is only might, strength, and valor found in you. Holy Spirit, work in us so that we may rejoice in you for the salvation that you have united us to Christ, that we may receive all the blessings of the mighty work that he has done. And if at times we experience severe sufferings in our lives, may we rejoice in our sufferings. For when we suffer, we partake in the sufferings of our Lord Jesus. O Spirit, fill us therefore with all wisdom and grace and give us the assurance that you are with us you, through the dwelling in our hearts. Father, hear now our prayer to the glory of your name. Amen.